Luke chapter 20. Now, if you'll look with me, please, at verse 41. Down to verse 44. Hear the word of the God of hear the word of God. Then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? John MacArthur, commenting on uh, this text in the Gospels, says that the most important question in the world is the question, who is Jesus Christ? If you get this question right, you have everything. You get it wrong, all is lost. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and get that question wrong? What does it profit a man to be Warren Buffett and have all the money in the world and to lose your soul, Jesus said. Many people in Jesus' day got the question right, but many people got it wrong. The Pharisees had it wrong. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, they accused Jesus of doing the miracles he was doing by way of demonic powers. Over the ages, since the early church, many people have gotten it wrong as well. Even people who have attributed high and lofty human uh, characteristics to Jesus didn't appreciate that Jesus was the Son of God. That is the answer, boys and girls, to the question that you need to know. Jesus is God's Son, I'm really glad that we are doing the Nicene Creed in addition to the Apostles' Creed because I love that line in the Nicene Creed, God of God, man of man. That part there showing the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Julian the Apostate, according to a commentator, Emperor of Rome in 361 to 363, said this, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame. Unless anyone thinks it a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs in villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. Well, there you see Julian the Apostate certainly had a low view of Jesus. Rousseau, coming from MacArthur's commentary, Rousseau said when Plato describes his imaginary righteous man loaded with All the punishments of guilt, yet meeting the highest rewards of virtue, he describes exactly the character of Jesus Christ. Ralph Waldo Emerson claimed Jesus to be the most perfect of all men who appeared on earth. Now, these things are true in and of themselves, but they don't go far enough. They don't go as far as the Nicene Creed. Uh, John Stuart Mill said the pattern of perfection for humanity was Jesus. H.G. Wells When I was asked which single individual left the most permanent impression on the world, the manner of the questioner almost carried the implication that it was Jesus of Nazareth. I agree. Jesus stands first. And that again, true insofar as it goes. But the humanity of Jesus rarely is a matter of dispute. It's the divinity of Jesus where most tend to fall short. And this is where the original audience was falling short in our text as well. 
The problem that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had was not so much with the humanity of Jesus, but it was with the divinity of Jesus Christ. And even today, some even under the banner of the church or of so-called Christianity, deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. We have people who are ordained to the ministry, who speak in Jesus's name and read from Jesus's book and yet do not believe Jesus is God of God. And they don't believe in his full divinity. They may speak of him as divine, but they mean something else. They mean somebody who is maybe highly inspired with human inspiration in the way that they would say Gandhi was or Martin Luther King or some other public figure. The cults deny Jesus's divinity. They teach Jesus as a prophet, but they certainly do not teach that he is equal with God. That is denied by Islam. It's denied by Jehovah's Witnesses and others as well. But what does Jesus say about himself? Well, Jesus here gives us really a wonderful lesson from Psalm 110. And I want to encourage you uh, sometime maybe on your own to study Psalm 110 in its original context. Um, We're going to sing Psalm 110 at the close of this service. But Jesus here teaches us something important about who he is based on Psalm 110. And I want to use uh, this text here to talk to you today about Jesus Christ being the son of David, but also the son of God. He's the son of David, but he is also David's Lord. He is the son of God. And I want us to see it here from Uh, A couple different verses. First of all, look at verse 41 with me here. We have a a poignant question and an inadequate answer from the Pharisees. A poignant question and an inadequate answer from the Pharisees. Notice here verse 41. Then he, that he is Jesus, then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say that Christ is David's son? Now, why is Jesus asking this question, boys and girls? What is he asking here? Jesus is saying, look at it again. How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Now, why does Jesus ask this question of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are questioning him? Well, Christ asked the Pharisees this question because what Jesus is doing is he is really getting to the origins of the Messiahship, the origins of who the Messiah really is. The reason for this question is really quite simple. Christ is asking this question for he is rightly perceiving within the Pharisees that they held a view of the Messiah who would be one of David's descendants, yet, according to John Calvin, would quote, bring along with him, that is the Messiah, the Messiah would bring along with him nothing more than elevated human nature. Just like those quotes I read to you in the introduction from Rousseau and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. The Pharisees had a view of the Messiah that he was not fully God. This was the heart of the problem and why Jesus brings up Psalm 110 And uh, applies it here to this question of who he is. And I want to encourage you to learn Psalm 110. um, If, you know, we we always have to prioritize our teaching and our preaching. 
And if, if you had to prioritize which 10 Psalms should you learn, Psalm 110 better be in that list. It's the most frequently quoted Psalm in the New Testament. It might need to be in your top five, actually. So if you need to know which Psalms are the most important, this is one of them. It's the most frequently quoted and just is the one Jesus himself uses for this very question here. Now, in the minds of many, the Messiah was really uh, no more than an ordinary descendant of Adam and of, of David here. And this, again, is very applicable to our own day. Most of the heresies that are out there against the church involve the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Heretics and cults abuse either one part of Jesus's nature or the other. They either misrepresent the divine nature or the human nature. I would suggest that today the attack has been on the divine nature. It's been that way for the last couple centuries. Now, in the early church, it was on the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Greek philosophy said that there's no way that uh, Jesus can be fully man because human nature uh, is corrupt. That which is physical is corrupt. And and there was this philosophy of Gnosticism in the culture. But today, I think it's more on the divinity uh, that the attacks come. And we need to, uh, I think, fortify uh, that end of the wall that is under attack. Uh, this is the part that is abused uh, by the cults. Uh, it is the one that is often misrepresented. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, some of you have had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. That's a part of what they do. They tend to go door to door. Uh, they're very aggressive in that way. And what they will try to do is they will try to persuade you that Jesus is not fully God, that he does not have the same essence as the father, but that rather Christ is the first of God's creative power. That is that God is one and that what God did in the beginning was to Create the word, if you will. That's how they misunderstand uh, the prologue of John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. They say, well, that's what the father did. He made the word. He spoke the word and Christ uh, became uh, into existence. But Orthodox Christianity has always taught that the son has always existed with the father and the spirit in eternity past and that the son is as every bit as much God as is the Father, as is the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So all three persons of the Trinity are equally and fully God with the same power and glory. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. All three persons, and yet God is one. This is the mystery of the Trinity, that God is one, and yet God is also three. He is three distinct persons, Yet he is one God. So the Pharisees have a misunderstanding of the son. They simply refer to him as the son of David. But what they miss is that the promises to the son of David could not be fulfilled by a mere man. No mere man can fulfill the Old Testament promises that were given to David. Let me show you this from a couple different places in your Bible. If you have your Bible with me, with you, uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, you need to know this chapter. 2 Samuel 7 is one of these pivotal covenantal chapters. This is the chapter where God makes his famous covenant with David. 
Now, here's the argument. I want you to follow me and I want you to get lost in the details here. I want you to see the forest for the trees. You what we're doing right now is we're going to look at some Old Testament passages that are promises to the son of David. They're promises given to David about his future descendant. And what I'm arguing here is no ordinary sinner. No ordinary mere man could fulfill what is being promised to David. All right, look at Second Samuel seven and look with me at verse First of all, verse 12 and 13. Look at verse 12 and 13. Now, you remember the story. David wants to build the temple of the Lord. Nathan, the prophet, says, go for it, man. And then um, as Nathan's going home for supper, uh, the Lord stops Nathan before he gets home and says, Nathan, I need you to turn around. Uh, Go back and tell David, you're not going to build me a house. You can get the supplies. You can get all the wood and the stone and all that. But tell David, you're not building me a house. Because I've got something better. I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to build you a house. So that's the context. So look at verse 12. Second Samuel seven, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is the Lord speaking to David. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, notice this typologically, this is fulfilled in Solomon. Who is it that builds the typological house of God in Jerusalem? It is Solomon. But that's not where the promise stops, congregation. The promise finds its fullest expression in Christ. How do I know that? Because look what the promise says. I will establish your throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon's throne does not last forever. Jerusalem goes into apostasy. Eventually, Jerusalem ends up being destroyed. The temple ends up being destroyed. The throne and the temple that is being built up for eternity is the one that is being built in the heavenly Zion through Christ. Through the spirit, through living stones, not earthly stones, but through living stones. As the spirit of God dwells in you, you become a part of the temple of Christ. This promise cannot be fulfilled by merely an ordinary man. It is somebody who is going to have an eternal throne. Look at verse 15. Same chapter, verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul. Basically, he's saying, I'm going to correct your descendants when they sin. I'm going to bring the rod of correction on them, but I'm not going to remove. No apostasy is going to remove the fundamental promise. I'm not going to break the covenant with you, David, no matter how wicked. No matter how many Manessas come down the line. Ultimately, I'm going to be faithful to you, David, and I'm going to establish a throne for you forever. He says, I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So what Jesus is doing here, remember here, Jesus is showing the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That the promises given to the son of David were eternal in nature. And that they should expect a Messiah who could fulfill these promises. 
so that the blessings of these promises could come rightly upon the Christ. They had too low a view of the Messiah. And, and Jesus is essentially pointing out, guys, if you understood the Old Testament better, you would understand my nature better. These verses demonstrate the eternal nature of David's kingdom. It's an eternal covenant. Look with me at another place. Psalm 89. Psalm 89. You know, they tell you in seminary not to have your church look at too many passages in the sermon. There's disputes on how, how much you should do, but we're doing it today. I need I need your eyeballs on this. Some of these passages today. Psalm 89, verse three and four. Psalm 89. Now we sing this psalm a good bit and for good reason, because this psalm sings about the covenant that God made with David. Now, look at verse three. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. Verse four, I will establish your seed forever. And build up your throne to all generations. If that's not enough, look down at verse 20. Same psalm. I have found David, my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. And then if you look at verse 24, my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. And then go down to verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Friends, David is dead. And his tomb is with us to this day, as they said in the book of Acts. But Jesus Christ has been raised, according to the scriptures, on the third day, and he has been seated at the right hand of the father, according to this very psalm, Psalm 110, that we're looking at as our text. For David himself, look at verse 42 of our text, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now. There are other places we could look as well. Amos chapter 9:11. Don't turn there. Let me just read it. Amos 9:11. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. There's a promise after the decline of the Davidic kingdom. Amos is saying, I'm one day I'm going to renew that kingdom. I'm going to rebuild it and it's going to be even greater than it was in the days of David. Look at Micah chapter five, verse two, Micah five, two. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, from Bethlehem, from this little teeny tiny town in Judah, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The nature of the Messiah will be that he is both God and man. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6. Jeremiah. Now, this is long after David's already gone and buried. When I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And now here's the part I want you to really hear. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The Messiah is going to be called Yahweh is our righteousness. Yahweh, our righteousness. Listen, friends, the Lord will not share his glory with another. The Messiah will have a title that is given unto God. This is why, for example, I need you to appreciate, for example, like in Matthew 9, 27, we saw it in Luke, where you have the blind men crying, have mercy on a son of David. That, that expression is a demonstration of faith. You need to understand that. Don't just pass by that in your Bible reading. That that was an expression of faith in Jesus Christ as the son of God who has all power to heal their blindness. And so when they're told to be quiet, they yell it out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on us. It's a messianic title that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ, showing that he is both God and man. We might be tempted to think that it was unrealistic for them to expect and to know that the Messiah would be God's son. But these Old Testament passages clearly teach that the Pharisees and the Sadducees should have expected more than a mere man. And yet they didn't. Here's Jesus's argument from Psalm 110. If the Messiah, the Christ, if the Messiah, who is also called Christ, is no more than a man the human son of David, this is Jesus' argument, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord. That is, Jesus is trying to show his audience if the, if the messianic expectation was just another man, though be it maybe a great man, why does David call that Messiah Lord? Look at our text here. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord, now that there is Yahweh, the Lord said to my Lord, to my Adonai. In the original Hebrew, if you go back to Psalm 110, what do you see there in the Hebrew? The first word that we translate Lord, I know this gets confusing, has the Hebrew word Yahweh behind it. Okay, that's the covenantal name of God revealed to 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 Moses. Okay, at the bush. All right. I am who I am. The Lord said to my, who's my? David's, David's the one speaking. God, who revealed himself to Moses, said to, this is David speaking, to my Lord. David is looking ahead to somebody who's greater than himself. See, in David's day, boys and girls, Dave, there is nobody greater than David. David's king. It's good to be the king. Nobody's greater than David in David's day. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is saying, yet there is one who is greater than me. That God Almighty, Yahweh, that covenantal name of God, said unto me, said unto my Lord, 
sit at my right hand. David is saying, I saw in a vision under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The almighty God saying to the Messiah who would be my descendant. Sit down and take power and take authority that is equal with mine. To sit at the right hand of God. Not in some typological sense like David himself was doing. But to sit at the very right hand of God in the Holy of Holies. In the heavenly Zion. Is this not what we see in the book of Daniel as the Ancient of Days says to the Son of Man, come up here. And the Son of Man ascends in the clouds. And sits down at the right hand of the Father. Sits down at the right hand of God Almighty. Now, liberals will say, oh yeah, but that second word that's translated Lord is the word Adonai. And that word Adonai is given to lots of people. Or how do we answer that? Yes, but God never anywhere else speaks to ordinary men as Adonai who sit at his right hand. <laughs> yes, as it, it, freely we admit the word Adonai is, is used for people who are not uh, equal with the Father. But here, though the word is used, he is being told to sit in the place of God's power. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, the prophet says that to me, that is to the Lord, to Yahweh, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And then when you get to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, Calvin puts these two together. He is saying, who fulfills that? But Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, both on, in earth and in heaven. And we know that God will not share his glory with any mere man. And yet he is sharing it with Christ. And that is because Christ is not any mere man. Christ is both man and God. And therefore, God is not doing any harm to his own being and to his own nature to share this authority with the son, with Christ, with the Messiah. This is the point that Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others at the temple here to understand. And it's what you need to understand. Because there are many who want to deny the deity, the divinity of Christ today. Here's the meaning. David, who is king and head of his people in his day. David is the king. He's the head of his own people. And yet he addresses the Messiah as his Lord. He addresses his, the Messiah as Adonai. Now, David would not merely have addressed a human descendant of his as his Lord. And therefore, the son of David, Jesus' point is this, that the son of David must be more than a mere human descendant of David. The son of David is greater than David because the son of David is the son of God. He is co-equal with God. As we see, 
Notice here, our text says not only does he share power, sit at my right hand, he says there in verse 42. But look at verse 43 until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is we see fulfilled here in Philippians chapter two. That Christ shall reign until everyone has acknowledged his lordship. Now, what does it mean to sit at God's right hand? It is to elevate Christ to the power and the glory of God himself. In Romans chapter one, verse two through four, we read this, which he promised the father promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh and who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Second Timothy, chapter two, verse eight, Paul says, remember, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, a descendant of David. Notice there the connection Christ being raised from the dead, vindicated as the son of God, who is obedient to the father in everything and that he is the son of David and that he is uniquely qualified to reign. Now, look at notice here that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pronounces the Christ to be the sole and supreme king. Listen to what John Calvin says about that. John Calvin says this here. The Holy Spirit. Puts into the mouth of all the godly a song of triumph, meaning when you sing Psalm 110. God puts into the mouth of all the godly a song of triumph that they may boldly defy Satan and all the ungodly. Did you know that's what you're doing when you sing this psalm? When we sing this song here in just a minute, we're defying Satan, according to Calvin. We're defying the ungodly world. And we mock at their rage when they endeavor to drive Jesus Christ from his throne. Whatever may be the madness of men and the world is mad. Whatever may be the madness of men, all they shall dare to contrive will be of no avail for destroying the kingdom of Christ. We sing Psalm 110 because Christ is exalted in that psalm. Calvin goes on, he says, Christ, which has been set up not by the will of men, but by the appointment of God. Jesus Christ. The father said unto the son. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they say a few things by application and we close. Number one. We need to learn this lesson that Jesus is teaching. We need to learn the Psalm 110, the song that Jesus is pointing us to. Whenever we come under attack, whenever the kingdom of Christ is coming under attack, whenever you're tempted to get discouraged at what you're seeing in the news, the persecution that's going on in Hong Kong, China, North Korea, in the Middle East, here in the United States, where we're seeing bizarre attacks on Christian ethics. We should remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is king. He is going to defeat all these enemies. All these enemies are going to have to bow the knee and with their mouth, they're going to have to confess the truth of what we sing, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king. It doesn't matter what the devil or what wicked men throw at the church. The church will prevail. 
Because Jesus Christ is on the throne. He has all power and authority. He has said, I will build my church. They have been trying to destroy the church of Christ for 2000 years and they have failed. And you can say that they have been trying to destroy the church for even longer than that. Through the Old Testament, Satan has failed. That the church continues to grow. The church continues to multiply. The church continues to uh, grow in understanding and knowledge. Despite all the efforts of ungodly men going back to the Roman emperors, all the way to the communists of the past and present century who have been trying to bring the church down, it is an act of futility. The harder they they squeeze, the more we spread out. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We need to remember this song when the heathen are raging against the church. They're despising all the rule and authority and law of Christ. We need to remember that Christ's kingdom is invincible. From every form of attack, whether it's an attack from without or an attack from within. All the enemies of Jesus Christ will be brought low. And verse 43, until I make your enemies a footstool. For your feet. What's a footstool, boys and girls? It's like a hassock. The king would sit on his throne. The throne would be high and it would be large and it would be impressive. So much so that the king's feet would not be able to touch the ground. And so they would put a stool under his feet. And here the imagery is that the, the, those that will be brought under the feet of Christ will be his enemies, just like in the Old Testament. Put your feet on their neck, said Joshua. And the enemies of Christ will be brought under the feet of Christ. Don't be uneasy for the future of the kingdom or the future of the church. Jesus Christ reigns and he will reign forever. Even the last enemy, death itself, will be vanquished. Christ will raise the dead and he will clothe us with a glorified body again. We'll be reunited with our perfected soul. Notice here the effect of this as well. What happens? They, they don't ask anything more of Jesus when he preaches this. He is able to silence his enemies, at least for now. I know it's tempting for us to get discouraged. I get discouraged. Uh, I get discouraged about what's going on in our country. I get discouraged what what I see, the things I read, read. I get I, last night got discouraged. I'm, I was looking at the history of the the internet and, and the popularity of uh, the the most popular websites of the last twenty years. And, and how I grieve that in the last 10 years or less that some of those most popular sites are, are pornographic sites. Uh, and I thought, how terrible that right up there with Google and Facebook and, all, and the Weather Channel and all these other, are these, thing, these, these sites that will be our undoing uh, if we give ourselves over to this as a nation. Um, you know, it's discouraging. 
But yet I have to re- remind myself that Jesus Christ is king. Christ, Christ is king and he's not going to let this prevail. We have, we have great promises that he will build his church and build his kingdom. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I want to encourage you to believe in the biblical Jesus Christ. Not Jesus the hippie. Not Jesus the guru. Not Jesus the philosophers. Not Jesus the mere good teacher. Not Jesus the humanitarian. He's, he's all that, but he's much more. I'm Jesus the Son of God. That's who you need. That's the one who can save your soul. That's the one who can raise your body from the dead. Jesus, who is God and man together in one person. He came into this world. He died for your sins. He, he said whosoever would believe in him would not die, but live, have eternal life. He promises that all who will come to him sincerely, he will receive them. He, he will not stiff arm you. He'll not forsake you. He'll not leave you. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The Christian faith, rightly understood, is a faith of, of great joy, is great love and hope. There's no other way to be saved in this world but coming to faith in this person, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.